Some of you are familiar with R.C. Sproul, the great theologian and author. He tells a story about a time when he was invited to play golf with a group of uh, gentlemen, one of which was a professional golfer. And so he's a little intimidated by that, but uh, he was happy to have the opportunity. And as they were playing golf, about halfway through the game, uh, the professional golfer turned to R.C. Sproul and he said, well, what do you do for a living? Well, at that time he shared, well, I'm, I'm a minister. Now, I've had those kinds of situations before where I'm on an airplane and I'm having a long conversation with somebody and they're telling me all the bad things they've done in their life and they're using all kinds of language. And then they said, by the way, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I'm sure it was one of those moments where when he said he was a minister, the, the fellow looked a bit shocked and I think probably half out of embarrassment, he said, well, well I feel sorry for you then. R.C. said, well, really? And he said, yeah, you have to live such a narrow life, such a restricted life that you don't have any fun at all. And R.C. said, well, I was thinking the same thing. I was feeling sorry for you because of the kind of golf game that you have to play. It's so restricted. It's so narrow. I've seen parts of this golf course you've never seen. <laughs> and the sad thing is then you've got to figure out because your golf game is so narrow and so restricted how to spend all the money you make. And the golf pro smiled and said, I get your point. You know, sometimes when we start to talk about temptation, that's kind of our initial response, isn't it? Oh, he's going to talk about temptation, about restricting us, about us not getting to have any fun anymore, and about how to have a narrow life. Understand this, that when God talks to us about having victory over temptation, he's doing so because he wants to protect us and he wants to provide for us. And he knows the payoff for the Christian life. You see, we, we don't keep God's standards. We don't keep his rules to be good boys and girls. Uh, we're saved by grace. Uh, we've been forgiven and we're going to heaven. It's not about earning our salvation. It's what's best for us. And just like those of you who are parents want your children to live a certain way and you don't want them to go certain places and do certain things because you know the damage that it can do for them. A loving father says, follow this narrow way. It is a way that leads to a payoff along the way. Bible tells us that Satan has a goal. Bible tells us that his desire, Satan is, our enemy is, to steal, kill, and destroy. There's a battle that goes on every single day where Satan is trying to shipwreck your life and the life of your family. Now, I don't know very many Christians who get up on a given morning and say, you know what, I think today I'll tell a big fat lie. And then what I'll do is I'll tell another lie to cover up that lie, and then I'll try to keep it all straight in my mind so nobody will catch me in my, all my lies. Don't know very many Christian couples who take all their credit cards and spread them out on the kitchen table as they begin a week and say, let's see how we could use these cards to, to dig ourselves a hole that we'll never get out of the rest of our life. Today, let's take one of these cards and let's spend away some of the security for our retirement. And let's lose all of our financial margin so we'll be at each other's throat about what the other person's buying or not buying. Don't know many people say that. Don't know many folks who say, you know what, uh, I, I'd love to, uh, today to gossip about somebody and just destroy their reputation. Calls all kind of pain in their life. That's, I think that's what I'll do today. Don't know very many Christians that when you say to them, hey, can you go with me and do something with me on Friday night? They look at their daytime and say, no, I've got it scheduled here to get an STD and uh, cause an unwanted pregnancy, so I can't go with you. 
people don't plan for those things to happen, but those things happen every single day, will happen today, because we don't plan for them not to happen. I want to guarantee you this, Satan's got a plan for your life, and he wants to pull you off of the straight and narrow because he's your enemy, and you better have a plan to counteract his plan. And the best way I know to do that is to understand his plan. If you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 John, the second chapter. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture is listed there for your convenience on the back of your program. In 1 John, the second chapter, verse 15, it says this. It says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't miss verse 16. It's the heart of our message today. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now in ancient times, if you wanted to destroy a people, if you wanted to capture their city, what you would do is you would attack that city at its gates. You wouldn't attack the walls. The walls are the most secured part. There's no way you would try to remove all that stone and chisel away. You would go at the gates because the gates would be the weakest point. And it was weakest because of the function. You had to open the gates so that commerce could come and go. You opened the gates so your army could come and go. And after you shut the gates, you would secure the gates, but it would still be the weakest part of the fortress. Same thing is true today. If someone wants to break into your house, where do they try to break in? They don't try to drill through the brick. They attack you at your gates, at your door, and at your windows because that's the weakest part of your house. And here in this passage that we're looking at today, God tells us where the gates are, where Satan attacks. And he says it's threefold. He says, first of all, there is the lust of the flesh. And that's where Satan attacks us, and his, his desire at that point is to get us to do something that we're not supposed to do. This is the gate of pleasure for us to, to, to do something, to cause some kind of sensation, some kind of pleasure in our life. The second gate that he attacks, he says here, is the lust of the eyes, and that is the temptation to have, to possess, to acquire, and all the things that you might compromise in order to have something you don't have. And then the last one he says is the boastful pride of life. And that is the temptation to be, to achieve something, to have some kind of rank, at least to be perceived as having that. Now, Satan is not very original. When he comes at us, when he attacks us, he attacks us at our weakest point. And it's one of these three gates. It's either the lust of the flesh to get us to do something we shouldn't do, the lust of the eyes to have something that we don't have, or the pride of life to be something that we think we have to be recognized as in order to be happy. You go all the way back to the very first temptation. Satan's not very original. He's still attacking at these three gates. In Genesis... If you look there in Genesis, if I can turn my Bible right side up, I can find it. <laughs> Genesis, the third chapter, verse 6. 
It says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Go back and look at the first part of the scripture. When the woman saw that the tree was what? Good for food. The lust of the flesh. To sense the, pre, the, the pleasure of eating that food. And that it was a delightful to the eyes. She had to have it. She had to possess that which she did not possess. And that it was desirable to make one wise. You see the promise of Satan was if you eat of this fruit you'll be like God. You will be something that you are not. And so from the very first, Satan has been attacking these gates. That is his battle plan. We need to understand his plan in order to thwart his plan. You go to Matthew, the fourth chapter, and you find Jesus Christ being tempted. He's tempted at those same three gates. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was uh, baptized there, not too far from the Dead Sea in the Jordan River and he came up out of that baptism and the Bible tells us the spirit led him into the Judean wilderness you could stand there today and you can look up into the Judean wilderness from that Jordan River uh, we traveled there not too long ago it's a very desolate place there's no water there except the water that falls from the sky and it quickly goes down to the Jordan River and then into the Dead Sea and because of that there's not much of vegetation there it is a barren place and the Bible tells us that Jesus was there fasting and praying for 40 days <coughs> and at the end of those 40 days Satan came to him and he tempted him and the first way that he tempted him he's, he attempted to uh, attack the gate of the lust of the flesh he, he called Jesus's attention to the stones that were there and he reminded him that those stones, no doubt, looked like the loaves of bread that his mother used to bake. He might have said to him, look at that one right there, that brown one right in the middle. Yes, that one. That looks just like one of the loaves your mom used to baking. Can you imagine that just coming out of that oven? Can you remember the smell of that? Imagine just ripping that open and the steam coming up from that bread and your mother throwing some butter into the middle of it and it oozing out on the sides. How long has it been, Jesus, since you've had anything to eat? You have the power to turn that stone into bread and take care of your hunger, the hunger of your flesh. Now, I remember when I was growing up, I heard the story, but I also remember the time that I heard the story that it stopped making sense to me. I questioned it, and here's why I, I questioned it. I thought, well, why didn't Jesus just do that? He mean he had the power to do that. He could turn that stone into bread, and he had a legitimate need. He'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Was it that Jesus only had like 12 miracles in his holster? And that if he used one to turn that piece of rock into bread that later on there would be a blind man and he would have to say well I'd love to heal you but I used it up on the bread thing out in the wilderness no Jesus had unlimited ability to do that and so the question was at that point in my life what was so wrong about it it's the question that you ask sometimes when Satan comes to you and he attacks you and he attacks me at the gate of the lust of the flesh we'd say well what's so wrong about it there's a real need in my life and I know God doesn't want me to go without and God doesn't want me to be unhappy so why not it's just one time 
You see, what would have been so wrong for Jesus to use his power is that he had power not to use on his own comfort, but he had that power in order to show the love of God. He had that power to give veracity to the message and who he was and that he had come from the Father. And to use that power for anything else would have been an abuse of that power. And besides that, he was in the wilderness for a purpose. He was in the wilderness to be alone with God and to prepare his heart and his life for his ministry. He was in pain. Yes, he was in hunger that day. And that pain was just a foreshadowing of the pain that he would feel in a lush garden where there was plenty to eat one day when he was facing the cross. It was that pain as he stayed in the will of God that he was supposed to experience because God was doing something in his heart that day. See, here's the real problem when it comes to the lust of the flesh. Most of us believe, deep down believe, that it is God's will for us always to be comfortable, for us to be without pain. And the truth is, is that sometimes in our desire to vacate the place of pain, we are leaving the very place where God wants to do a special work in our life. God will meet our need. He has promised to meet our need. But sometimes he delays that promise because there's something that he can do in our hunger that he cannot do in our satisfaction. And there's an attention that we give to him and we draw close to him in that time of discomfort that we will not experience when we are satisfied. And there's a meal that he wants to provide for us in the midst of that pain that pales, everything else pales in comparison to. Have you ever had your mom or your dad say, don't eat that, it's going to spoil your dinner. See, if Jesus had taken that rock and turned it into bread, it would have spoiled the feast that God had for him there in the wilderness because God was going to feed his soul. And so just like we're attacked at that gate, Jesus was attacked at the gate of the lust of the flesh. He was also attacked uh, with the lust of the eyes. The Bible tells us that Satan took him to a high place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all of this you can have. If you'll just fall down and worship me. He was also tempted in that third regard in that he was tempted in the boastful pride of life. The Bible says that after he had rejected the first temptations, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, when I was growing up, when someone said the pinnacle of the temple, I thought they meant a steeple and that he took him on top of the highest steeple. But that's not the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, this is a photograph of the temple mound, the place where the temple was in the time of Jesus. In the time of Jesus where you see that gold dome, that was approximately, not exactly, but approximately where the temple was. Now what's important is all the way around that is a retaining wall. And that retaining wall is actually the retaining wall for what is known as the temple mound. It's, it's the plateau or the base on which the temple sits. Not the temple itself, but where it sat. This, this temple mound or retaining wall was built there on top of Mount Moriah and the southeast corner of that point of that wall where that wall comes together there was known as the pinnacle of the temple. It wasn't actually of the temple, it was the pinnacle of the temple mound. And it was there that Satan took Jesus and they looked down into the Kindron Valley. The Kindron Valley is that green area there. The time of Christ, the road that you see at the base of that wall was not there. It was a straight drop 
from the pinnacle of the temple or the southeast corner of the retaining wall of the temple mount down into the Kindron Valley. And Satan said to him, if you'll just throw yourself off of this down into that valley, God will send his angels to catch you. And in this strategic place, all the muckety-mucks of religion, all the priests will be right there to see that miracle take place. And they will immediately know and recognize you for who you really are, the Messiah. And as a result, you won't have to go to the cross. Now, where Jesus was standing that day on the pinnacle of the temple, he could look straight across the Kindron Valley, and straight across from the Kindron Valley was the Garden of Gethsemane. It was that olive grove where one day Jesus would say, not my will, but your will be done. And Satan that day was saying to him, if you just jump off of here, you can have and you can be what you could be seen for who you are and you don't have to go to the garden and you don't have to face that agony and you certainly don't have to go to the cross. What was Satan offering him? Satan was offering him what he offers all of us anytime that we're tempted. He was offering a shortcut. You see, most of the time when Satan comes to us, Satan doesn't come and offer us something to meet an illegitimate need in our life. Most of the time he comes to us and offers to meet a legitimate need in our life in an illegitimate way. And here's why it's illegitimate. Not because of the deed of its, itself, but it is asking us to step outside of the will of God in order to have that need met. More importantly than that, it's asking us to stop trusting that if we obey God and if we are in his will, that our needs will be met. So he's asking us to step outside of faith. Bible says that whatever is not of faith is a sin. It's not the little list that we have, or here's the really bad things and here's the okay thing. It says that whatever you do, even if you do something good that's not of faith, it's a sin because it's stepping out of trusting God to meet that need and seeking to meet that need yourself through some other means. It's a, it's a question of the source. Here's the question is, who or what are you depending on to meet the greatest needs of your life? Or another way of putting it is, who or what is your source? It's the key question because your source will determine the course of your life. You're not going to stay where God wants you to stay. You're not going to be in the sweet spot. You're not going to have the victory if you go somewhere else to another source to have that need met. Many of us are familiar with the tale of when uh, the Greeks came against the city of Troy. For 10 years, they attacked that city, and they attacked it even at its weakest point, the gates, and they still could not succeed. So after 10 years, they decided to leave. They got in their boats, and they sailed off into the fog. But before they sailed off into the fog, the story tells us that they built a gift for the city of Troy. They built a wooden horse, a Trojan horse. And thus we have our phrase today that we use, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Because inside of that horse, they hid an elite group of men. And, and after they sailed into the fog bank, the, the people of Troy looked over and they realized that they had, after 10 years, had won the victory. 
And there were some who wanted to destroy this gift that the Greeks had left, but there are others who were so prideful of the fact that they had been able to withstand the attacks on their gates that they decided to bring that gift into the city of Troy to celebrate. And so they opened up their gates and they pulled in the Trojan horse. It was interesting in that it was big enough to be grand, but somehow it was small enough to fit through the gates. And that night they had a great celebration and they fell into a drunken stupor. In the middle of the night, a trap door opened up an elite group of men came out and they went and opened the gates. Meanwhile, the boats had pulled back from the fog and landed on the shore and the Greeks came in and they killed all the men and they violated all the women and their children were taken off into slavery. And the sad thing is after 10 years of withstanding the attack, they lost the war because they opened their own gates. What is it outside of the walls of your protection, outside the protection that God promises to give us as believers, is so desirable to you that you would be willing to open your own gates to let the enemy have full reign in your life and in the life of your family? What is it that you and I are trusting to meet a need in our life that we're not trusting God to meet in our life? How do we fortify the gates? Well, one of the ways that we do that is we determine the need behind the deed. Now, I could give you a task today. I could send you out with a beach ball. And I could say, here's your task, should you choose to accept it. And that is to take that beach ball and just hold it underwater. Most of us could do that for a while. You know, we could figure out a way to position ourselves where we could hold that beach ball down. But you know, after six or seven days, you might get tired. You might get distracted. And sooner or later, what's going to happen is that that beach ball is going to come up out of the water. It is. Now, you could try again. You could say, well, let me do it again. And you would do okay, and maybe you had even learned some techniques from the last time and learned from your failures. But in two or three weeks, you would get distracted again, and the ball would come up again. And you'd say, well, I guess that's just something I can't do. But you know there's a way, an easier way than that, and that's just to take the air out of that beach ball. And if you were to do that, you would find that it's a lot easier to keep it down. It takes a lot less effort, a lot less strategy because there's no air in it. It's the air that causes it to come to the surface. You see, when we let Jesus Christ meet the needs in our life that he designed us to have met, there's not as much pressure on us to fall prey to opening up our own gates. You see, these are legitimate needs. There's, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. If there were, God wouldn't have made food tasty and sex fun, all right? I got an amen on that in the last service. 
there's nothing wrong with possessions. If there had been something wrong with possessions, God would not have given us clear instruction in the Bible about how to be managers of all the things that we own. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with healthy self-esteem and proper recognition. It's just that when we seek after pleasure and pleasure becomes more important than obeying God, it's just that when we seek to possess and that becomes more important than staying in his will, it's just that when we seek to be and to have a, 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 a good feeling about ourselves to the extent that we would be willing to violate our principles and our values, that's where it becomes a problem. See, all these needs are needs that God created us with, and he wants us to have all those needs met. He just wants us to trust him to meet those needs. In Matthew, the 26th chapter, in verse 41, it says this. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He tells us two strategies here. He says, first of all, keep watching. Don't be having a picnic on the battlefield. We're in the middle of a war, and the evil one seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Stay on your alert. Beware when you think you stand. But the second strategy he gives us is to keep praying. And by this, he's not just talking about bowing your head and folding your hands and saying that prayer before you do a meal, but he's talking about that continual connection with God the Father. It is in that continual communion with him that we're reminded about the fact that he's the one that we're depending on for our salvation. And just as we have depended upon him for our salvation, we can also trust him to provide everything that we need for life and godliness. And it's as we have that communion with him that when the evil one comes, we don't come to the gate, we send him to the gate because he is able to overcome the strong man. Somebody once said that uh, opportunity only knocks once, but Satan leans on the doorbell, and he does. And have you noticed that he keeps coming back to the gate that he's had success in? Every one of us here, we have at least one sin that so easily besets us, don't we? And Satan's coming back there again, and when he knocks again, we... We recognize the knock. We know what gate he's at. And it's as we keep watching, more importantly, and keep praying, we keep that connection. I don't know about you, but I have a real hard time sinning when I'm talking to God, don't you? Don't you have to stop thinking about him? Don't you have to put him out of mind? In 1 Thessalonians, it says, pray without ceasing. He's talking about this constant uh, relationship, this constant conversation, this commune that we have with God. And then when the evil one comes, because of our relationship with him, not because we're pushing, not because we're trying harder, not because we're, we, we worked out all these strategies, it's because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The secret to overcoming temptation is a deep and abiding presence in the only one who's greater than our enemy. Let's thank God for that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the salvation that you have provided and thank you for the strength to be different. 
Thank you for meeting our needs in such a way that we don't have to uh, be tempted by what Satan is offering. Help us, dear Father, to exercise our faith when we're in times of distress, when we're in times of need, knowing that in your own perfect time that you will meet those needs. And if you haven't met them yet, it's because there's something you want to teach us in that time of distress or pain. We confess today that you are faithful. And we know, dear Father, that with every temptation, you have promised a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. Help us to trust you, to believe in you, and to live in you. Thank you for calling us to a narrow and a restricted lifestyle that has promise of a tremendous payoff, not only for ourselves, but for your kingdom. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.